Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. In this episode, Rabbi Adam Shalom reviews the book Start Up Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle by Dan Senner and Saul Singer. Is Israel a miracle? Well, certainly people claim it as such. They look at prophecies in the Bible of a return to the land of Zion, of an ingathering of exiles, and they see that as foretold in the Bible, and yet it came to pass, a miracle. Certainly in the aftermath of the Second World War, the terrible trauma of the Holocaust, the destruction was followed by a seemingly miraculous rebirth of a people in its own land, speaking their original language. Israel is a tiny nation amid millions and millions of hostile states with thousands of miles of territory and millions and millions of people and armies and everything else. And if nothing else is miraculous, to have one state with all those different Jews from all those different cultures and all those different experiences and all those different levels of religious observance from the most radical, secular, atheist, socialist, communist to the most radical, right-wing, fundamentalist, ultra-ultra-orthodox who doesn't even recognize the state because it's not Jewish enough for him. And yet, it hasn't fallen apart. Maybe that's the miracle. Now, we see a lot in the news about Israel relating to war and peace and Israel and the Palestinians, issues of religion and state, who is a Jew, and who gets to tell you who is a Jew, <laughs> politics and coalition governments and elections. But you hear very little about the Israeli economy. Did you know that there are more Israeli companies listed on the NASDAQ than from all of Europe put together? Now, the old American Jewish image of Israel and Israelis was, you know, the kibbutz farmer, the, the poor cousin who needs help. I'm always struck every time I get a mailing from the Jewish United Fund, which is the Federation in Chicago, it's the JUF Annual Appeal slash Israel Emergency Campaign. It's a standing emergency. It's always an emergency to support Israel. Well, that's problematic. There's an organization out there that I, I think is marvelous. It's called American Jewish World Service. And they support developing countries. They've set as their target doing service development work in the bottom third of the UN Development Index. And periodically people complain to them and say, why aren't you helping Israel? And their answer is, Israel is not in the bottom third of the UN Development Index. In fact, it's in the top third, it's in the top quarter. They don't need our help. This organization says Jewish community service is not Jews serving Jews. It's Jews serving. However, we still think of Israel as this poor cousin, yet it's in the top 50 of global GDP. It's, well, it was recently admitted to the um, Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, the OECD. It's in the high-income OECD category. Now, their income, their economy, is not based on natural resources. They recently discovered some natural gas deposits, but that was very recent. They haven't developed it yet. And it's certainly not based on kibbutz agriculture. I mean, uh, the kibbutzim right now are making a living one of three or four different ways. They are tourist attractions. They sell their produce in Europe because it ripens two weeks before the European produce does, so they have a niche market there for a couple of weeks. And they are great cemeteries because they'll bury anybody. Uh, the state cemeteries are 
run by the rabbinic establishment. And so if your partner's not Jewish or your parentage is questionable from their perspective, but if you're uh, at a kibbutz, no problem. But that's not what is driving the Israeli industry today. Certainly tourism is a major industry there, and diamonds, surprisingly, although if you think about Jewish history, it was portable wealth. You know, owning a farm was not useful. Owning a mansion didn't help you if you were expelled, but owning diamonds, that was portable. But most importantly, their industry now is largely based around technology. It's software development. They have a robust venture capital field that is investing in this kind of industry. Electronics, biomedical equipment, and so on and so on. Now, if Israel's economic success is a miracle, as the title of our book indicates, Startup Nation, the story of Israel's economic miracle, well, if it is a miracle, then I'm reminded of that advertising line that the Hebrew, uh, sorry, the Technion University in Haifa used um, in an ad that I saw once. It said, miracles happen. They take a lot of work. That's Israel's economic miracle. It happened, but it took a lot of work. Now, one of the most interesting parts of this book, Startup Nation, are the examples that they've chosen to show what innovation is like in Israel and the kind of clever problem solving that you'll see coming out of Israeli startups. So you might remember the story of Shai Agassi, who is, as far as I know, of no relation to the tennis player Andre Agassi, <laughs> even though he spells the name the same. They might have both come from Iran slash Persia at one time. But in any case, his major innovation is in the idea of an electric car. But not just in the idea of the electric car, the idea of the network needed to support an electric car. After all, the Nissan Leaf is a wonderful idea, but it gets 40 miles <laughs> on a charge. And I mean, I guess I could make it home and back if I had no emergencies or anywhere else to go. But otherwise, 40 miles on an overnight charge is, is not going to get you very far. And what Agassi did was he had a couple of insights into what it would take to really make a purely electric car, not a hybrid car, as all the other versions are that are out there, even the uh, Chevy Volt, which runs on an electric engine, has a gas engine to charge it in an emergency. Uh, as one of the executives said, uh, a hybrid car is a little bit like a mermaid. You want a woman, you get a fish. You want a fish, you get a woman. <laughs> so in this case, he wants a purely electric, battery-driven car. But how are you going to do it? The batteries are so heavy, and it takes so long to charge. What are you going to do? Well, he had a few insights. The first is, what if you treat the battery like the gasoline? You know, when you go to your fuel, what drives your car is the gasoline you put in at a filling station. So what if you could just take out the battery and put in a new battery? And now you're gassed up and ready to go. Well, how are you going to move this huge, heavy battery out of place so fast? Let's use the clips we use to hold bombs on fighter planes. Well, again, most Israelis serve, uh, secular Israelis certainly serve in the army. Many of them serve in the Air Force. They have the engineering and technical capability. They took those clips, put them at the bottom of the car. You don't want a bomb to fall accidentally, so it's going to be very secure. <laughs> They've come up with a system that they can change those batteries in two minutes. And then you can take the used battery and charge it with solar and charge it with wind and charge it however you want, cheaply. In fact, it's cheaper to operate an electric car than a gas car. It's about seven cents a mile versus 10 cents a mile. But the issue is that heavy battery. And how do you pay for it? Well, again, a new innovation. Thinking like cell phones. When you often get a free cell phone when you get a new service. 
What you're doing is you're paying for the cell phone over a long period of time. Well, why not treat it the same? You pay an annual subscription fee to the company that's paying off your battery a little bit at a time. And his most important insight, and this is the crux of the thesis behind the book, there's something unique about the Israeli setting for testing this kind of an invention. That's the miracle. It's not that it happened. It's all of these circumstances that conspired to make it happen. The unique feature of the Israeli transportation system is that cars have limits. And the limits are the borders of the state. Because nobody drives from Israel into Lebanon, or from Israel into Syria, or from Israel into Jordan, or from Israel into Saudi Arabia, or from Israel into Egypt, certainly not now. <laughs> so there's a cap. Doing this kind of a setup in America is very hard to do, because you need the infrastructure of these changing stations to change the batteries. But I couldn't get from here to Peoria. But in Israel, if you're driving, the farthest you can go is maybe half a day's drive. From one end to the other, I mean, that's stopping for lunch. I mean, there's only, there's only so far you can go. So in, in any case, I mean, it depends if you skirt the West Bank. Or, you know, there's, a lot, a lot, there's only 17 ways to get there, right? OK. So the point is, Israel is like a transportation island, which is a perfect setting to test this kind of an infrastructure for electric cars. Now, the authors of the book have explored various aspects of Israeli society, trying to highlight what are the keys to Israel's economic success. And some of their point is, what could we replicate in America, or what could other company, uh, countries replicate in their desire for economic development in the 21st century? Well, some they can, and some they can't. I want to highlight four of them. The first is they, as they describe Israel, and is, is the case, Israel is a nation of immigrants. Now, we've often seen in our own experience that immigrants have a lot of drive and can be very successful, particularly in new industries. You may recall that Hollywood, once upon a time, was a new place, and it was a new industry. And the people that got into it were new immigrants, in this case, Jewish immigrants coming from Eastern Europe, who invented the American dream. Well, they did that because it was a new industry, and the guilds and the Establishment wouldn't necessarily let them in in other places. Well, this was a place they could make their own fortune, build their own city, do what they wanted to do. Well, the same is true in Israel. When you're an immigrant, you have to start over. And sometimes start over and then start over again. That's what the startup business is like. Most startups fail, you know. You have to take risks. You have to work hard to succeed. And when you're an immigrant, you take nothing for granted. As Shimon Perez says, the essence of the Israeli condition is to be dissatisfied. That's the essence. That's my joke that uh, the Jewish people have gone from being the chosen people to being the choosy people. <laughs> so we just complain. Well, that's the essence of Israel as well, the idea that nothing's perfect until you do it better. Now, Israel faced a huge population growth in a very short period of time. In its first 50 years, its, its population multiplied five times over, about a million Jews in 1948, now 5 million Jews and counting in uh, 2011. What that requires, of course, is a tremendous amount of economic development, starting new industries, because you just can't feed all those people into what's there. There's only so many farmers on the kibbutz that you can use. But also, it provided great resources of human ingenuity and talent. All those Russian Jews 
who got engineering degrees and computer science degrees. They might have wound up in manual labor initially when they came to Israel, but eventually, as they learned the language, now they were available. And Israel didn't have to pay to train them. They came with advanced degrees and knowledge and expertise. You know, that being willing to start over puts you in mind of the story they tell in the book about intel and processing. It used to be the case that the way you measured whether a chip was successful was how fast did it go? How fast was it? Fast, fast, fast. That was the most important feature. Not necessarily how fast was it computing, but how fast was it cycling? And a number of engineers in Intel's Israeli department realized that they were going to hit a wall where they just could not cram more power into this chip unless they found a way, and the analogy they use in the book is, to shift to a different gear. You know, when you're pedaling on your bike, you go fast and fast and fast in the low gear, but once you shift to a higher gear, you can pedal a little bit slower, but you're moving faster. And that's, in, in essence, what they were able to do by re-engineering the chips. The, the speed of cycling went down, and people thought that would be a disaster for the company in PR and in the stock price. But in fact, for maintaining their market share and their positioning, for maintaining the quality of computing, it was crucial. But you had to be willing to start over, to take the risk, to go from nothing to something new. So being a nation of immigrants, is key. Second, the ability to question authority. There's a great line at the end of one of the chapters where it says, the essence of working with Israeli staff is that they will say to you, why are you my manager? Why am I not your manager? <laughs> Reminds me of the story when uh, David Ben-Gurion met Eisenhower, uh, President Eisenhower, and said, um, it's, uh, you know, Eisenhower said to uh, Ben-Gurion, it's not very easy to be the president of 200 million people. And Ben-Gurion said, that's nothing. You should try being prime minister of a million prime ministers. <laughs> <laughs> so where does this questioning of authority come from? Well, it comes from a kind of Israeli informality. Um, I sometimes joke that uh, Israeli formal dress is unbuttoning your shirt another couple of buttons because they almost never wear ties. Um, they do now, though. They've, they've had enough inter, uh, international commerce. They've, they've learned how to wear suits and ties. But it's not their natural uh, ethos. Um, the uh, approach to teamwork uh, and egalitarianism that comes out of their army service, where someone who's a cab driver in regular life can become a colonel in the army and reserves, and then you, and the person who's from a very wealthy family is a private, uh, you know, you, you sort of a social leveling experience there. There's also a kind of maturity that comes from entering the workforce after doing your army service, which is a life and death, death experience in many cases. Um, and in such a setting, you're just not going to put up with the kind of office politics and gossip that you might put up with otherwise. Life in some ways is too short to put up with being dissatisfied. But also the approach to risk and failure comes out of this questioning of authority. That is, if something's a failure and people will get killed because of it, you need to fix it. And so Israel has inculcated in its army a relatively strong tradition, not absolute, but pretty strong, of reassessing what went right and what went wrong. You can read the stories of after every war, there's a commission of inquiry into what did we screw up and how can we do it better? Um, it happened after the Lebanon War. It happened after the fires that took place near Haifa just this past winter. Um, it happened again after the Yom Kippur War in 1973. They, they set up these commissions to figure out what did we do wrong? What do we need to learn? Well, that willingness to question authority, to say, you're doing it wrong, we need to do it this way, that translates into the business world as well. 
They have to reassess. They have to innovate when they need to. Uh, the book tells the story of how the Israeli Air Force works compared to the American Air Force. The American Air Force has an almost bottomless quantity of planes, and so they're specialists. They have one group that's the radar interference group, and one group that's the tactical bombers, and one group that's the fighter intercept. Well, in Israel, you got eight planes going on a mission. And so they all have to be able to jam the radar. They all have to know the other people's targets in case one gets shot down. They all need to have bombs. They all need to have fighter capability. They're sort of a jack of all trades. They joked it was like sending a Winnebago up there, you know. It's not going to do as well as a Formula One racer. But if you're going through the desert, you'd rather have the Jeep with all the stuff thrown in the back than the Formula One racer. It's going to get bogged down. Okay. <coughs> Uh, and this also is what they call a mashup, where you combine different fields and different experiences into one place. So they use biotechnology and distance imagery to create what's called a pill cam, where you can swallow a pill and it will take pictures all the way down and out. And they can get insights that they can't get any other way into what's going on in your system. Now, one of the other claims they make, and I, well, we'll question this a little bit later, is whether Jewish tradition is a source of this kind of questioning of authority. You know, we hear a lot about Judaism as a religion of asking questions and uh, people can challenge uh, authority. Well, so-so. <laughs> if you read the Talmud, there are plenty of stories of people who ask too many questions, who ask the wrong kind of questions, and who were expelled. So, uh, you know, when you think of the ultra-Orthodox world today, you don't think of a world of free-form question and discussion sessions. Well, they're also living Jewish tradition. In any case, it's one of the claims. Um, and the best part about this informality and questioning of authority is getting everything out there. A uh, story is told in the book that uh, there was an Israeli corporate meeting and an American who was sitting in on the meeting was shocked at all of the yelling and the screaming that went on at the meeting. And uh, the Israeli said, when we all emerged from the meeting, red-faced after shouting, he asked me what was wrong. I told him, nothing. We reached some good conclusions. It's just the modus of, it's just the way it works. Uh, we have a friend, my wife and I, um, who is Israeli by background. Uh, he's more soft-spoken than your average Israeli. Uh, but his boss at his company is also Israeli, and they'll go into these meetings, and he can tell the difference between really mad and just expressive. <laughs> but in the American corporate world, expressive is not what you do. Um, so it creates a very interesting dynamic between the, uh, the two uh, cultures. So, nation of immigrants, questioning authority. The third is dealing with your limitations. I mentioned the restrictions on travel. How far can you go in your car? However, in a plane, hiking, you can go anywhere. And Israelis have made a tradition out of, in the time after their army service, when they're finally able to escape, they'll go to India, they'll go to Argentina, they'll go just about anywhere to get away, but that also has opened their horizons to traveling for business, just about anywhere, if only to get away. They were very early on making business contacts in China, in part because it was a little more comfortable for them to do business in China than Germany, given their history. But also, the Chinese had no legacy of hostility for the Jews, and separate from the food, you know. <laughs> Israel has very limited water resources. And so they lead the world in wastewater recycling. 70% of their wastewater is recycled, which more than doubles the nearest, closest uh, country. They have limited water. They develop something called drip irrigation, 
where just a drop of water comes out a little bit at a time. It doesn't evaporate into the sky like a frill sprinkler would, and it waters the plant. It can be very successful with a fraction of the amount of water required. At one time, they had a socialized economy with very centrally controlled systems and loans and banking and everything else. Well, they liberalized it. They changed. They not only created venture capital opportunities, but gave government seed money to create venture capital opportunities. It's also the example of what I call training with weights. You know, If they were trying to be economically successful during a socialized economy, just imagine what they did as they became a more free market economy and those socialized limits were lifted. Now they were able to really be successful. They have a small population, but they have a compulsory draft to serve in the army. What that does, of course, is greatly increase their talent pool for army training, including technical training, technological training, <coughs> intelligence training, computer training. It used to be the case, I went to an Ivy League school, that a large percentage of my fellow graduates would have gone into the CIA, would have gone into army intelligence, serve their country in that capacity. But of course, uh, ROTC hasn't been welcome on Ivy League campuses for a long time until recent developments. And a very small percentage of anyone who goes to those schools has military experience, either before or even after the campus experience. It just isn't the same talent draw. You know, our army is a volunteer army. And so they don't get to draw from everybody to pick the best or the best. In Israel, on the other hand, they pick from just about, not all, but just about everybody. The other thing that happens in the army is they try to identify talent. It's a meritocracy. Well, okay. The book presents it as a, a pure meritocracy. You take these tests and they take the best people and they all go into the best units and everything's, well. There's also an Israeli concept they borrowed from Russian called protexia. Protexia means getting somewhere because of your connections. We would say protection in uh, English, you know, the uh, euphemism meaning that uh, you use your connections, you can get where you need to go, so some people come out of the army really disillusioned and frustrated. They find it you know, not as much of a free-form challenge authority uh, vision as they might have imagined. So again, this is overdrawing the picture a bit. And the last dynamic is Israel's interesting balance of collectivity and individualism. On one level, Israelis are in it just for themselves. And you see this in the haggling that goes on in the marketplace, in the driving that is appallingly awful. You know, more Israelis have been killed in car accidents than in all of their wars combined. Well, their rudeness, <laughs> you know, the lack of uh, veneer. Uh, one of the jokes is told in the book is um, someone uh, comes up to a, an American, a Russian, and an Israeli, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, and says, um, excuse me, can you tell me when the meat shortage will be over? And the American says, what's a shortage? And the Russian says, what's meat? And the Israeli says, what's excuse me? <laughs> now, on the other hand, when you meet Israelis, or if you are invited to their home, and they'll invite you to their home very easily, they're, they're wonderfully hospitable. They'll work around their schedules to accommodate your needs. They're very helpful. Hitchhiking is very popular there, even today, even after all the terrorism. Hitchhiking is done. And they're happy to give you advice <laughs> to help you. I told the story that uh, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, told that he called information for a phone number to a restaurant. 
And the operator told him, oh, you don't want to eat there. <laughs> and she gave him the number of two or three other restaurants. <laughs> that's being helpful. It's, the, the, the ethos that's presented is everybody knows everybody. That you just know people, and it's a community. And so you're ruder to your brother than you would be to a stranger in some ways. Because there's no filter. You don't need it. We're all in it together. So it's individualist in some ways. I need to get what I need to get, and you're in my way. But in the end, we are all in this together. Now, at the end of the book, in the last chapter, they say, what could derail this economic miracle? What are the risks? And they highlight some important ones. The first is that there are large populations in Israel that are non-productive, that are basically a drag on the economy. So uh, men and women, uh, who are in what's called the secular or the general population of Israel, uh, they work at very high levels. 85% of men, 75% of women are productive workers in that core age group of, say, 20 to 60. But Arab women don't work in large numbers, something like 70% aren't working. And Haredi ultra-Orthodox men don't work. It's how they get out of the army. You see, if you are a full-time Talmudic student, in this ultra-Orthodox tradition, you don't have to serve in the army. But you can't work to qualify for that. So it's a, a weird incentive where they're forced to not work, to not serve in the army they think is trafe, is not kosher. But that creates a very odd dynamic that they're living off of charity, but forced to live at a poverty level. It's a very, very uh, bad situation. And they're, they're talking about it now in Israel, the need to make the Haredi population more productive. Israel lives in a dangerous neighborhood. It's not news. Uh, in fact, one of the anecdotes in the story was this man was flying to visit a company he just bought. Um, and as they're flying in, he's looking at the map of the plane coming in, and he's looking at all these countries and cities around it. He's Lebanon, Syria, Saudi Arabia. What, where am I going? <laughs> what have I done? Uh, what is this neighborhood? But it's an issue as well for keeping Israelis in Israel. There is an Israeli diaspora in the West of hundreds of thousands of people who were raised or born and raised in Israel, or at least had exposure there, and who left. Often they are, uh, well, I mean, we have one, we have a few. Uh, they're uh, often well-educated. Uh, some of them are Israeli professors that have left positions in Israel and gone to live elsewhere, or technically trained engineers. I mean, this is the brain drain, people that aren't willing to live in that dangerous neighborhood anymore. And they're also the more secular, the more productive population. The ultra-Orthodox that are in Israel tend to stay in Israel. Now, this neighborhood is not only dangerous, but it's also dangerously underdeveloped. You know, free trade agreements work a lot better with your neighbors, but it's hard to do in the Israeli neighborhood. You know, the vast majority of the Arab population is under the age of 25. We've seen this in Egypt. Between 2002 and 2005, there were fewer books translated into Arabic for all Arabic-speaking countries than there were books translated into Greek in Greece. <laughs> or look at patents that were granted. In the 20 years from 1980 to 2000, Saudi Arabia, as a country, had 171 patents granted, Egypt 77, Syria 20, Jordan 15, Israel 7,652. Well, it's a very underdeveloped neighborhood. And the poverty levels of these societies, as we've seen in Egypt and in Tunisia, are exploding. You know, they're not complaining necessarily, I mean, they're complaining about governance. 
And most of the Egyptians on the street are not complaining about Israel. Some of them are. It's absolutely true. And the Muslim Brotherhood is just as uncompromising on that subject as they've ever been. But some of them are not. And it's much more about jobs and economic development and opportunity. I heard a piece on the radio just this afternoon on NPR. The army owns beach resorts. <laughs> because after the peace was made with Israel, they had this huge army, but they were afraid of what's going to happen if they dump all these young men back in the labor market. It's already oversaturated. So they kept them employed by making the army into a development agency. And so they had all these beachfront property that were bases. <laughs> they don't need anymore. So they turned them into beach resorts. But the army owns them, and the officers are stockholders. And the, I mean, it's a very interesting uh, problem. But that kind of development is not going to be successful in the long run, and certainly has not been successful in employing the vast majority of this large, large young population. So those are the promises, and those are the risks that they outline. Now, what are the shortcomings that I see? And then I want to open up for your uh, comments and reactions. Well, the first problem, and they do talk about it a little bit, but they spend a lot of time talking about Israeli and what Israelis do and what Israelis think and how Israelis work. But they really only mean a proportion of the population. They're talking about the secular Jews or the secular and traditional Jews, as they define it, which is about 75% of the population. But they're also talking about the people who are uh, not just non-Orthodox, but more open to other experiences. They are willing to travel to non-kosher locations. You know, those first Jews going to China from Israel were not finding kosher Chinese restaurants there <laughs> to eat it, and they weren't looking for them. And they're also not talking about the Arab population in Israel, which is 20% of the country, and does not serve in the army in any great numbers, and does not have access to the everybody-knows-everybody everybody world that they're talking. And that's 20% of the population. So now you're talking 80% of the population is Jewish. And now three quarters of that is who you're talking about. So you're talking about 60% of the population. Well, all right, so Israeli, well, 60% is all. Well, it's not all. It's a lot more complicated. And sometimes they misunderstand that population, too. And they talk about the Talmudic studying argument as a model for challenging authority. Well, as I said, there are limitations to that. Maybe it's the Jewish experience of rebelling against the rabbis that's much more the uh, cultural roots of this kind of egalitarianism. After all, Israel was founded by secular Jews rejecting waiting for the Messiah, not the ones that were piously studying the Talmud, hoping for the Messiah to come. The second objection I had was the use of the word miracle. Because miracle, in some ways, says there's no explanation for it. That's why I like that, that uh, ad line from the Technion. You know, miracles happen, they take a lot of work. Well. This is not really a miracle. It took a lot of work. And it reminds me of a cartoon by Sid Harris, who does uh, cartoons based on science. And there's a, a long series of equations. And, and then in the middle, it says, then a miracle occurs. And then another series of equations. And, you know, and the, uh, the professor who's reviewing it says, I think you need to be more explicit here in step two. <laughs> well, there's a more explanation that could be given here. I mean, the claim is Israel is the only country with all these factors. The, Jewish cultural emphasis on education and the culture of innovation and the nation of immigrants and the army service. And those that have some of those features, like Singapore or Finland or the United States, they don't have all of them. They don't have the army service. They don't have a culture of creativity. Singapore is rote memorization and not creative learning. Well, I sometimes wonder when people talk a lot about how many Jewish Nobel Prize winners there are or all of the Israeli technology that you'll find in your cell phone. Is it a new version of the kind of chosen people bragging or chutzpah that, look how smart we are. Look how much better we are. 
Yeah. It's problematic. I mean, you could have written this book differently and said, look how similar Israeli development is to these other places. But the biggest objection I have to the book, and in some ways it's what we tend to do now, is we have a pattern that shows up for three or four years in a row. It's a new rule. Have you noticed in political prognostications in the last 10 years, they've said, oh, it's going to be a permanent Republican majority for the next 50 years. And then after the election in 2006, oh, no, it's a permanent Democratic majority. The demographics are in our favor, and it's going to be us forever. Well, surprise, surprise. It doesn't work that way. What these authors are talking about is a track record of 15 or 20 years of Israeli economic development. Now, these war and peace issues, they try to say it's not as crucial for economic development and future development. I just don't agree. It's not irrelevant to foreign investment. It's not irrelevant to have trade deals with other countries. It's not irrelevant to your long-term success. If more and more of these Israelis' brains are leaving the country because of this persistent war and peace, because of having to send their kids to the army, because of having the society move in a direction they don't feel comfortable, you know, there's a uh, social schism brewing there where the Knesset recently voted to set up a committee to investigate left-wing groups. They didn't call it the House Committee on Un-Israeli Activities. <laughs> but they could have. Why? They are left-wing. Not anymore. And so the question becomes, is this battle between right and left in the governing coalition uh, and in the society going to leave more, lead more people to leave? And it's only exacerbated by the war and peace issues. So they've had 15 or 20 years of a good run. But after all, Israel was not always ahead of the curve. Remember, it was founded based on a kibbutz agricultural economy. Back to the land, let's rebuild the land. Because that's the wave of the future, farming. Not with industrial farming. Not with machines. Not with uh, genetic, genetically modified crops. I mean, the world of agriculture is radically different and there's no ways to sustain a living or to sustain a population that needs to work that way anymore. So Israel's been behind the curve, too. You know, that socialist governance, that socialist economy that they had that held them down for so long, that kept their economic growth limited, they chose to do that, too. That was from the same Israeli ethos of creativity and challenging authority and having universal armies. Well, so you're trying to say that this is the new reality forever. Well, it's a good run. But is it going to last? Well, who knows? Now, Shimon Peres appears a few times in the story. He was one of the uh, political leaders who helped to get Shai Agassi moving on his project. And I've heard Peres speak a couple of times. He uses the same joke at the beginning of each speech that I've heard. So he may use it at every speech. I don't know. <laughs> um, his story is that Israel uh, has very limited resources. Russia has a thousand lakes. Israel has two lakes, and one of them is dead. <laughs> what does happen in Israel? to develop the countryside even? They've planted trees. Israel has more trees today than it did 50 years ago. Unusual, if not unique. And that, remember that, that message of we drain the swamps, we reclaim the land. Today we call that destroying wetlands. We <laughs> have to remediate it. You know, it's a very different uh, culture now. But uh, the idea is that they did it. They went in and they did it. Or even the current high tech boom. What are the resources Israel has? It's not natural resources. They're real resources. Are their smarts, their efforts, and their emotional commitment to the state and to building something? And after all, that's the most humanistic lesson you can find. That's why Israel is a great example of the values and beliefs of a humanistic Judaism. 
What did we sing in the service? Where is my light? Where is my hope? Where is my strength? Brains, the effort, the commitment. It's in me, and it's in you, and it's in them. So I'm curious for your reactions to either my presentation about this story, the issues that were raised in it, or even your take on the book. Please. Well, I disagree with you. I did not take away that the book was saying that we are chosen, and this is why this is so great, is because we're chosen and we're special. I came at it more from a leadership standpoint and a corporation management standpoint. Why, how is this different, this um, type of leadership, this type of working together? And I thought that's what the book was explaining. How does the environment allow this innovation to take place? It allows it to take place because there's power sharing, it's collaborative, there's no, the hierarchy is limited. I'm not gonna say there's no hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Hierarchy is limited. Um, it is a, a, um, an environment of inquiry and challenging and thinking outside the box. And that has only come in American business of late, in the last 10 years, whereas that type of thinking has been in Israel, if not from the, if, from the beginning of the state, a little bit later, because you had to think outside the box. How were you going to do things with limited resources? So I took the book as, a way, as their effort to explain this that others could learn from it. Why is this environment so successful in innovation, in um, venture, in startups, etc., whereas these other places have not been when, in fact, they have this aspect or that aspect. Mm -hmm. So I didn't take it as being chosen or that well, we're so special. That's, that's a fair point. That wasn't the dominant approach. It was one of the sub-themes they did touch on from time to time. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's modeled as, look, they're not going to sell this to rabbis. I mean, that's not their market for the book. <laughs> their market for the book is the corporate world yeah. and to try and improve corporate management and to mm -hmm. let companies make more money. That's the, that's the goal. Uh, so, yes, they're trying to draw these lessons that can be applied more broadly. Look, the lesson of being a nation of immigrants, we could take a policy position out of that. In this country, we chose to. No. Um, I agree with uh, Lior. I think, you know, it was a really good book to, you know, where I If you want to know where I came from, what I went through, read the book. Uh, <laughs> criticism of the book, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, he's talking about secular, like me, grew yeah. up on a kibbutz, went through the army. Actually, a lot of things that I read in the book was new to me that I didn't know before, the things that they do in the army and all that. Now, uh, if the neighborhood in such a bad shape, that's the time to make peace, because that will ensure that the economy <laughs> is going to thrive for the future. And that's exactly the point where Israel needs to put the security as a second stage and make peace with the neighbors because that will enable all of that. And if they're really good in all this economy and being uh, entrepreneurs and fail and fail and fail again, they, they should do that with the peace process too. What's amazing is that with their high per capita defense expenditures, they're still right. a, a relatively successful economy. Right. But this again you know, raises the question, <coughs> two questions. One is, there are very severe issues of poverty among certain populations in Israel. Um, and for a country that's on the upper level of the OECD development list, uh, that shouldn't be the case. And in particular, 
you know, a country that gets so much uh, nonprofit work. There's something like 100,000 nonprofit organizations in Israel. Was, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It was like one for every eight people. <laughs> they should get all the it's not quite that bad, but serve in the army. Well, it's a different issue. But, uh, but it's amazing how much money they get from philanthropic support from outside of the state. I mean, all these academics that are there working at think tanks, they're being paid by donations often from the United States or other uh, outside countries. That, uh, that we don't get the resource from Israel coming the other direction. So um, they have tremendous advantages that if they could redirect some of that, uh, those resources, the peace dividend would be uh, really tremendous. Yes, Ruth. Um, well, I didn't read the book, um, and I found your presentation very interesting. But I uh, quibble with one point where you said that the um, ethos of the kibbutz and of going back to the land was something the Israelis chose and that it came out of their ethos. I don't think so. It came out of the Eastern European Zionist idealism that thought that, you know, that Israeli, that, that they, when they created their state, should um, no longer be this urban people, mm -hmm. that they should go back to the land and be, you know, like other peoples, a nation like other nations, et cetera. Um, so all of that was from the founding, from the founders group. Right and not necessarily from what became the Israeli population. Right. And, and even uh, among those early immigration waves, before there was a state, there was a large immigration in the 1930s of Jews from Germany, Austria, and other uh, mm -hmm. Poland as well, uh, not just from anti-Semitism, but also just from the economic depression. Um, and they came when they were bourgeois. They wanted, uh, you know, they built all those beautiful Bauhaus uh, houses in uh, Tel Aviv that makes it the prime location for Bauhaus architecture since it was all destroyed in the Second World War in Europe, but it survived mm -hmm. among those German emigres who made their way to Tel Aviv. Um, and, they, and they wanted businesses. They wanted to live in the cities. They were not interested in back to the land. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's true. It was, a, it was a certain segment, and it was part of that founding wave of Zionism and socialism that said that real work is productive work and physical work with your hands, not mm -hmm. book work, word work, writing work. Um, and that was, that was the... That, Dominant ethos at one point, but certainly has faded, and now it's uh, it's really on its last legs. Yes, um, I, I agree with you. I think that what you're getting at is that this is kind of like a Thomas Cahill gift of the Jews. That if this wasn't, you know, Israel startup nation, if it was Australia export nation or something like that, that it wouldn't sell, and that it gets published because it's, you know. Jews buy books. <laughs> Jews are going to buy books about themselves. and That make them look good. <laughs> that make them look good, but not too good, because we don't want to go in that direction. Yeah, right, right. Um, and then I, I thought in the last book that we read, um, something that Stephen Hawking talked about was that you have a, a model-driven reality. Well, the reality is Israel is here today, that you know, if you look back at 50 years ago or 60 years ago, you would maybe project forward that, you know, there's a million paths that Israel could have taken, that it happened to be that they were really innovative and they were, you know, they had their standing army and all of, and conscription and all of these other factors and it adds up and boom, you have a startup nation. And, and I think that it's a little bit of kind of reverse thinking that you can't just put everything into the pot and boom, you have a startup nation. It's exactly have, the same way you right. Saying, right. And, and so it, it's, and, and going back in history, it seems like we've got nations that overachieved, whether it's Portugal with, you know, their, um, you know, during the age of exploration. The British Empire. British Empire. You know, it, it's, it's a little bit of the here and now. Yes, Israel's doing a great job, but 
it's a little hard to, to take it as a, a business manual and then say, well, you need to you know make your culture like this, mm -hmm. and then you'll have wonderful, innovative com right, company right. or whatever. Yes, Ilya, and then... Uh, um, one thing they didn't do, which I would have found interesting, is to compare startup nation Israel and Silicon Valley. Because mm -hmm. uh, those are probably more similar. Uh, I was talking to somebody who was comparing actually Israel to China. And he goes, in Israel, it's like you have 3,000 these entrepreneurs running around. And in China, what is it, 3 million? So that's that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, if, if Russian Jews didn't arrive, it didn't change the culture, I mean, the reason I didn't go to Israel is because I didn't want to be a socialist. Mm -hmm. You tried that. <laughs> yeah, and I was absolutely not interested. Uh, Didn't well for me either. <laughs> to me, the issue is where are they going going forward? And I suspect just like the country moved away from socialism, eventually they'll move away from a religiosity. And they will go through those changes. Uh, and, you think uh, they'll move away from religiosity? That's correct. It's wow, it's a, I hope you're the right. same reason. Uh, I mean, it's just look at where the where the population had grown. I mean, Russian Jews are basically getting to the point where they seem to be in charge in many, many ways. And even if they're not in charge, they're the loudest. Sometimes. So, so you give the uh, really the uh, people who came from Russia the change the culture of the entrepreneurship in Israel. Absolutely, I think that uh, the it, it has uh, uh, obviously, and I don't know how the book. It was about education. I mean, you basically had you heard of a brain drain in Soviet Union. Now, Soviet Union at the time is a country of three hundred million. Okay, fifty percent of their brain drain went half to America and half to Israel. Just yeah. put these things in I think it was a factor. I mean, just a, uh, uh, you know, it was a factor that contributed to it. I don't think it was the the the, the number one. I think you know what's interesting is uh, just thinking back story. anecdotally to the names in the book. Almost none of the names they mentioned were Russian names. Yeah, True. they were all Israeli, like yeah. Hebrew Israeli names. No, they do mention Google. Uh, yeah, sorry, right. right. And yeah. they also mentioned that there is this one high school, right? Yeah, right, right. It's all in Russian. Right. And uh, the other thing is that uh, once they are, once they've been in the country, they're young. By the time they're like six, seven, they probably don't use Russian mm -hmm. as much as they can. So the the whole thing kind of goes away. Right. But the amount of education, I mean, typical Russian Jew, what ninety-five percent were college educated, right. and they didn't go into liberal arts. Wasn't the right thing because that's right. a communist. Well, so they run into yeah. engineering. Yeah. That's a lot of engineering capabilities. Right, right, and that's why there's so many factories that are manufacturing these My brother, right. he's 86 now. He was retired and he went to live in Israel. And as far as I'm concerned, he was living in a Malat. Never heard of Malat. Then he once tells me. There is this interesting factor around here, and they Malo. called me in the Malo. Malo. Malo? Yeah. Oh, Malo. Oh, oh so nice spot. There is an interesting factor around here, and they called me and they said, Can you work part time? And he goes, It's been very interesting. There's really interesting people here. And I'm like thinking, Look, the guy used to have 300 engineers working for him. He's just being amused, amusing himself. That was you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. He was 70s. Well, it turns out it was Iskar. Uh, the company. Uh, 
which Warren Buffett just bought for four billion. So maybe he was not that easily. <laughs> 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 Roger, you were gonna say? Yeah, I'm just. I didn't read the book, but I was listening to all the examples you were giving, and if you look at them from a positive point of view, you've got the book. If you take each of those examples and you look look at it completely negatively, you've got the elders of Zion. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, this is always the, the challenge when you're dealing with anti-Semitism, because you can take the same evidence and read it a different way. So I sometimes will make a distinction between um, describing uh, the position of Jewish people in Hollywood. If you say Jews run Hollywood, you're probably a sociologist. I mean, there's a statistical high percentage of people running things in Hollywood that are Jewish. Okay. If you say the Jews run Hollywood, now it's a conspiracy. <laughs> because it's the Jews, not just some Jews. Okay. So this is the dilemma with the Israel's success that they have this technology and all these, all these places and all these devices and all these um, software pieces. It could be a wonderful asset or you can read it sinisterly, but the evidence isn't going to change your mind. You, know, you are sort of pre-conditioned uh, to read the evidence either positively or negatively. But one of the stories that's told in the book is uh, this man who goes around pitching Israel. He's like Israeli salesperson, he's selling Israel all the time. And he wants everything that has an Israeli product in it to have like Intel inside. He wants to put a little Israeli flag on the outside of the box. So that they see how many things are made in Israel. Um, you know, it's sort of the opposite of this project someone did a couple years ago to try and only buy things made in America. They found it impossible to get a cell phone because they just, there just isn't, there isn't a cell phone made that doesn't have something made somewhere else. It's not the whole thing. Uh, certainly mostly in China. Yes. Yeah. It was it was also really interesting when they point I found it interesting when they pointed out that it's it's not horrible to fail. That it, in, in our culture, if you start a business and you fail, you're ashamed. And you kind of crawl into a hole and you pull it over your head for a while, most people. But in Israel, when you fail, you just get back up and start a new one and you get ten failures. But it's not frowned upon in the society. Yeah, and again, that would be an interesting comparison with Silicon Valley, yeah. where again you have a lot of startups yeah. that don't well, make it. And actually, I was listening to uh, a tech podcast where they were talking about the startup, and once you reach a certain age, usually about thirty-five, you just don't want to do it anymore <laughs> because the problem in America is you're not going from Haifa to Tel Aviv or maybe even to Jerusalem. You're going from Silicon Valley to Washington State to New York City to Alabama, and you're just weary, you know. And so the first one, you know, when you're just out of college, it's fine. The second one, but by the third one, and you've got kids at home, you just, your wife says no more, and your body <laughs> says no more. And, and there are certain things you have to pay for. I mean, yeah. in Israel is one example. They have what is branded here as socialized medicine. It's the National Health Service. There's no question that you'll have health care no matter what your employment status. In this country, that's not the case, and that's a drain on uh, entrepreneurial creativity. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.